Well, good morning. Grab your Bibles, turn right there to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to invite Corey Fultz up to read our passage for today. It's going to be right there in Ephesians 3. As he's coming up, I just want to wish you all a happy St. Patrick's Day. Uh, Just real quick, how many of you know the origins of what St. Patrick's Day means? Of course you don't. It's a pointless holiday. Nobody cares, right? But I hope you have a good one. So, Corey, if you can just come on up. Uh, We're going to read Ephesians chapter 3, the first 13 verses of that chapter. So. Um, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. Also stand, if you would, for the reading of God's word. I know, I know you just stood, but you get to sit down for the next 30 minutes, and I'm going to be standing, so you can do it. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, We may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Thank you, Corey. Real quick, this is Corey's first time reading. Uh, The last four Sundays, we've gone through one verse, three verses, three verses, and three verses. And then he gets his first time 13 verses. He did a good job, didn't he? Um, That's that's what you call breaking a new guy. Uh, Let me just ask you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Uh, just, Lord, for your presence this morning, God, we thank you for this word uh, and how it is, it is the source of life for us, God, that, uh, that Jesus was the word embodied and now it's the revealed word to us that we get to study, uh, that we get to dig into, God, that we get to learn from, and we pray that as we do that, Lord, that you would just be the one who teaches, that you'd be the one who speaks and moves and convicts, you'd shove each and, each and every one of us out of the way, and that you get the glory from everything that happens in this room. And we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. You can have a seat. I got my first ever job when I was 12 years old, um, so I'd like to quote Ron Swanson here, child labor laws are ruining this country, right? Um, but I took a job at, at uh, Cloverdale Golf Course. It was just a, a short drive uh, from my uh, home. Luckily, I wasn't driving yet, but my parents could drop me off there since it was close, and uh, the pay was terrible. Uh, the job was kind of fun, but the best part of that job is it came with free golf, okay? And so very quickly, I, I fell in love with the game of golf, in part because I didn't have to pay for it, right? But now, now it's just kind of taken hold of me. And if you want to have any proof of how broken human beings are, just talk to a golfer for a little bit, okay? Because what every golfer is defined by this. We all love a game that loves so few of us back. It's just the reality, right? We, very few ever get good at it. Uh, when you play, the majority of the shots you're not going to be happy with. Uh, and yet we just keep returning. We can't help ourselves. We just still love the game. In fact... I, I, right now I have four kids, and so my relationship with golf is that I miss it terribly, 
maybe one day we can be really, you know, reunited again. But this love that we have for the game, it's not, it's not like the game didn't warn me ahead of time, like how it was going to be. Early on, it tried to tell me this is how this relationship is going to go because I just started playing and I had too much confidence in my abilities, too much confidence in my leadership. Big shocker, right? And so one day, my parents had like a get-together at their house, and so a bunch of cousins came over, and I'd only been playing golf for about five months, and I thought, you know what, I'm going I'm to show off a little bit here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach everyone else how to play. Uh, and so I got a bunch of golf clubs out, and a bunch of golf balls out, and I lined them all up, lined all my cousins up, and I showed them the proper grip, and I showed them the swing plane they wanted, and then I said, all right, now you're going to, we've got a field here, I'm going to let you hit some balls. And I started to walk in front of them and put balls down. Never, ever walk in front of people with golf clubs, Right? <laughs> But the reason I wasn't worried about it is because I had stated, I'm going to walk in front of you, no one swing. Well, one of my cousins didn't get the memo. And it happened to be the one with the driver. And they did a full swing and it caught me right in the side of the head, right by the temple. And I dropped and everything went black. I mean, it just, it, it hit me out of nowhere, right? I never saw it coming, okay? And, and, and I tell you a story to tell you this, right? That can happen in life, can it? Right, some of you, some of you, maybe this week it happened to you, you got, you got ready in the morning and you were looking fresh. You were looking really good, okay? And you took your first step out the door and, and you spilled your coffee all over you, right? Or, or I get, I'm betting in a room this size, there was a family this morning who loaded up every, all the kids in the van and you were for the first time in months going to be at church on time and then there was this undeniable odor of just the most rotten diaper you've ever smelled. Right? I'm sure that happened to somebody in this room, but this can happen in, in, in much more impactful ways than that, can it? You, you have your career all lined out, you have all your goals in place, and then you unexpectedly lose your job. Or are you going for what is just a routine test or physical, and you get really unsettling results, or an accident just changes the course of your life, and you never saw it coming. Now, in addition to that reality, we have a God, we serve a God who's, very unpredictable. Now, he himself never changes. His character and his heart never change. He remains the same. But, but there are things that he tells about himself, like Isaiah 55. Here's what he says. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so what happens is often God moves in ways in our lives that we just, we just can't get a hold of, we can't grasp. And when that happens, not only does he not owe us an explanation, we likely couldn't even understand the explanation if he offered it to us. In fact, in Isaiah 45, we're told that, that he's a God who occasionally hides himself. Jesus states on multiple, times, multiple occasions in the Gospels that he taught in parables in part so that his first hearers wouldn't 100% understand him. Paul, in his writings, refers repeatedly to the grace of God as being mysterious. And we're going to see that in Ephesians 3 today. See, there are times where God in his wisdom is crystal clear, without question. There are other times that he lets us sit in the tension for a little bit before revealing something. And then there are others where he just chooses not to reveal things. He just holds them to himself. And so what that leaves us is we are sinners living in a sin-stained world where we can be surprised at any moment and we have a God that we can't grasp. And with all that formula, with all that equation results in a very common mistake that human beings make when faced with this is that we begin to put our trust in all the wrong places. Much like I trusted my, my abilities to teach or I trusted my cousins to follow basic instructions and I still took a driver to the temple, right? Maybe it's confusion. Sometimes it might be desperation. Oftentimes I think it's our insatiable need to feel in control. What happens is we begin to trust in ourselves, 
We begin to trust in our plan. We begin to trust in our abilities or we trust in speaking positive things over ourselves or or we trust that we can overcome. And the problem with that is all that trust does absolutely nothing to stop the next surprise from coming. Do you ever feel the need to control things? Do you ever desire to be your own solution? you ever bought the lie that you are sufficient? Does God ever feel mysterious to you? You've been confused about what he's up to in your life and why he's letting some things happen and not answering other prayers. Have you, have you maybe, maybe in this room this morning, you've been shaken by something recently that you never even saw coming? Well, today I want us to look at this passage in, in Ephesians 3 that, that I believe will help us with this. And, and, and it's, it's kind of unique in, throughout the entire book because what these verses are that Corey read for you, they're, they're a parenthetical thought. They're kind of like an aside right in the middle of the letter. Okay? And, and my prayer for today is that God would use this, this sort of side thought from Paul to, to clarify for us where it is we should put our trust, that God would embolden our walks with him, and that he would free us from, from discouragement. Now for some context, before we jump right into the start of chapter 3, if you weren't here the last few weeks, we covered chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you could wrap it up in one sentence, it's, it's all about what God has done for the Gentiles. And so in the chapter, you find out what they were and what they are now. What they were was that the Gentiles were dead in their sins, that they were under terrible authorities, right? They, they were deserving of wrath. They were separated from Christ, separated from any citizenship in, in, in Israel. They were without hope and without God. It's about as bleak as it can get. But now, thanks to the work of Jesus Christ, we're told that, that, that we as Gentiles, we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. That we, if we believe in him, we are under the headship of Jesus. We are saved by grace. We are united with the Jews into one humanity in Jesus. We, our citizenship is in heaven. We are in God's family and we have been brought into his church. And so in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 starts with, for this reason, Paul is pointing back to chapter 2. So for this reason of everything that God has done for the Gentiles, here's what's going to happen now. But then I want you to look down at verse 14. He says it again, for this reason. Right? So what happens is Paul starts a thought in chapter 1. So for this reason, he points you back to chapter 2, and then he's like, wait a minute. Let me real quick just break this down for you. And then in verse 14, he's going back to that original thought. And so this section in verses 2 through 13, in, in the original Greek, it's all one long run on sentence. It's one sort of continuous flow of thought before he picks back up in verse 14. And this side thought that we're going to unpack today is all about expounding upon not only what God has done for the Gentiles, but how Paul got to be a part of it. So look at verse 2. He says, surely, he's writing this church that he knows, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. And so he starts with them, with the, connecting with them. You guys know me, right? You know part of my story, so surely you've heard about, and he has this phrase, the administration of God's grace. Now that's not a phrase that we use today. It's not 2019 lingo. So, so to help you understand what this means, when he uses the word administration, what Paul is conveying is a sense of a trust that needs to be dispersed, so, so like Paul received a deposit of, of news that he needed to then share out wide. Right? And then he tells us that the, the, the deposit was this mystery that has been made known to him. And he's already written about it, which is everything that he talked about in chapter 2 of the Gentiles. 
And so for the rest of the section that Corey read for you, he, he unpacks the mystery and how it's changed his life. And so there's a couple things that I want us to pull out of this section that I believe are, are really relevant to our lives today. And number one is this, that God is always on levels that we aren't on. So as I was breaking this section down, studying it this week, I had two different reactions. The first was this, why in the world would God choose to keep something a mystery? And then as I said it more, what I came to, the second reaction was this. Why would I ever think I could fully understand God? And by the way, I think the second was the much healthier of the two questions. Because okay, this, in this section letter, Paul writes about the mystery of Christ, the mystery of grace. And he says a couple things in verses 3 to 5. He says this mystery was not made known in the past. Like God didn't reveal, he didn't tell anyone about it. It was, it was secret, right? And then now this mystery has been revealed. It's been revealed by the Holy Spirit. And it's been revealed to the apostles and prophets to go proclaim to the world. So what is the mystery? Look at verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The mystery was all of chapter 2. Okay? Now we're doing... Uh, this 90-day Bible reading campaign as a church called Knowing Jesus. Um, if, you're, if you're following along with us, I hope you're doing well. Uh, if not, pick up in Mark 6 today and join us, okay? But if, if, you're, if you're following along with us, have, has anyone else noticed as we're working our way through the Gospels that the only beings who knew who Jesus was in the Gospels were demons? They get his identity right every single time. And do you know why? It's because God did absolutely nothing to hide the promise of the Messiah, He did absolutely nothing to hide the coming of his son. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies about the coming, birth, life, and death of Jesus. But did you know there are very, very few Messianic prophecies about the resurrection? And there's nothing about the church. Nothing. Especially when it came to this idea of of Gentiles and Jews being brought together into one body. There's nothing about Gentiles being grafted into the people of God. Nothing about them being adopted into God's household. Nothing about them being becoming co-heirs with Jesus. God literally just kept that part of the plan all to himself. Here's how 1 Peter mentions it. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Do you catch what Peter's telling us there? He's saying those Old Testament prophets who, who delivered messages from God about the time that we now live in, this new covenant, as they delivered the message, they didn't understand them. They couldn't even figure out what it was. They were, they were faithful to deliver what God told them, but they, they didn't know what it was because it was a mystery to them. And then he says, even angels, even some of whom God sent to proclaim the arrival of his son, to make announcements, even angels are in heaven watching all this unfold, and they didn't even see it coming. Do you know how you feel when you watch a movie that has a whole kinds of plot twists? That's what the angels are like in heaven. They're watching this, this unfold. They're watching the, the church take shape. And they're like, oh, man, the Gentiles? Man, we didn't see that coming. You see, God, what, now, the question we need to ask at this moment is this. Why would God do this? Why is it that God kept his church a, a secret until he decided it wasn't a secret anymore and now everyone needs to know about it? You ready for this? I've thought a lot about it. I have no idea. I don't know, right? 
and you don't either. Because here's what happened. God planned out sending his son to earth in the form of a baby, that he would walk on this earth, that he would live the sinless life, that he would teach for three years, that he would give his life on the cross for the sins of the world, and he told everyone who would listen about it. He kept saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and this is what's going to happen. God also planned that his son would launch the church which would be fueled by the resurrection power of Jesus, that this church would be for all the world, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, all alike, any who trust in Jesus Christ would be brought into that church and that they would be one humanity given the mission of building his kingdom and he told no one about it. Until Jesus looks at Peter and says this word, on this rock I will build my church. That would have been a brand new word to the disciples. Then he told his, his apostles in, in Acts 1, you're going to go into all the world. You're going to go in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the world, earth, and you're going to be my witnesses. His church is scattered in Acts 7 and 8, and they start going to those places. They start going to the Gentiles, and he confirms his calling to the apostles. And then he saves Saul and makes him, he declares him as a, an apostle to the Gentiles. And in verse 9 of this chapter, Ephesians 3, Paul tells us that his calling now, his life mission, is to make plain this mystery. That, is, that it can't be a mystery anymore. Now everyone needs to know this plan. Now he needs to go and proclaim it. And so the reason that God kept this secret and mysterious up until it wasn't is beyond my grasp. I have some theories, but they are just complete guesses because he never explicitly tells us. And so the best question to the answer, why the mystery is simply God is greater than us. His timing is perfect and above and beyond our timing, his reasons are holy and good and, and above and beyond our reasons. And, and I'm thankful this morning that we are assured in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the last word. That we don't need to be looking for, for new revelations from God. We have the last word. But, but even in that, you understand, don't you, that there are aspects of God's kingdom, there are aspects of our future, there are aspects of heaven that we don't know and we can't know. Right? Jesus said, only the Father knows the day and the hour in which he will return. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us this, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We just don't know. Isaiah 40 asks some really good questions. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or who can instruct, or who, who can instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The answer to all those, of course, is nobody. No one. God in his word right, has told us everything that we need to know and he's been clear on all of it. And still, there's absolutely an ocean full of things that we don't know. There's absolutely uh, countless things that he's up to in your life right now that you're completely unaware of because he is always light years out in front of us. He does nothing by accident. He's never caught by surprise. He's always in control and he's always good. And so this mysterious God who never does things the way we would do them remains faithful and good and holy and worthy of our worship. Because he's always on levels we aren't on. The second thing we see in here is that God always uses imperfect people for his purposes. So look what Paul writes in verse seven of chapter three. He said, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Okay, so this is his mission now. What do we, what do we know about Paul's life before he got this calling? Well, we actually know a lot. 
right? Because we, we see his story unfold in the book of Acts, and then we have all these letters that he wrote, and so we know a ton of his story. And one of the most descriptive passages is Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul describing himself before life in Jesus Christ. And here's what he said. He said, if someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that's confidence in themselves, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That is not the most humble passage in the Bible, okay? That is Paul's autobiography of his life before Jesus. And he's saying, all you people who want to put confidence in your flesh and confidence in yourself, I had more than all of it because I was an ardent, proud Jewish man. And I followed the law faultlessly as a Pharisee. In that role, he would have despised the Gentiles. And on top of that, by the way, he more than despised the church. He saw it as the corruption of Judaism, and so he persecuted it. We see him in Acts holding the cloaks of the people stoning Stephen to death. When he meets Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, he's heading to Damascus to go arrest Christians. I tell you all this because every year, right, when, this, is, this is one of the areas that I get to nerd out. Every year I'm in a fantasy football league. And I know what the Bible says about pride coming before a fall, so I would never take this opportunity to tell all of you that I'm the reigning champion. I just wouldn't do it, Okay. And one of my, my favorite nights of the year is our, is our draft night. We all get together in a house, we have a ton of food, and you each take turns selecting players to fill your team. And what you do is you select players that you think are going to do good. You base it on last year's performance, base it on current, like future projections or current situations. And at the end of every night, at the end of every draft, there are dozens of players not chosen. And the reason they're not chosen is because no one wanted them. Because we all looked at them and said, there's zero chance that they're going to bring any value to our team and and they're going to perform. And I bring that up for this. If there was a fantasy apostle draft in the first century, picking someone, any person, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, not only would Paul not have been chosen, he would have been the last choice of anybody. Do you get how ridiculous this is? He was a Pharisee who saw only the Jews as God's people. He's a man who not only didn't believe in Jesus, was attacking everyone who did. He was a man so full of himself, so common in his righteousness, he said, if anyone on the planet, I alone have the most ability to trust in myself. And God looks down on earth and says, that's my guy. How little sense does that make? Well, it makes all the sense in the world in the mind of God. And there's at least two reasons I can think of. I'm sure there's more in his mind. But the first is this, that there's not a single one of us not a single one of us worthy of serving him. You understand, none of us have earned his presence in our life. None of us have earned his grace. None of us have earned the privilege of following Jesus or the opportunity to serve him. No person would be worthy of any task that God called them to. And secondly, God specifically uses people through whom he will get all the credit and all the glory because that's the only explanation left. You watch this throughout the Bible You have Gideon, uh, the the man whose clan was the least of all the clans of Israel, and he's the least in his family, and he's a coward hiding in a wine press, threshing his wheat, and God shows up and says, I'm going to use you to overthrow an army. You have Mary, who's this young, poor, uh, most likely orphan girl, who's soon going to become the scorned of her community, and God says, I'm going to use you to bring my son into the world. You have Moses, who God looks at him like, you're a terrible speaker. And the last time you are in Egypt, you killed a dude, and you've been hiding ever since. And I'm sending you to Egypt to stand in front of Pharaoh and demand that he let my people go. 
And you read these stories and you think, man, has God never heard of monster.com? Does he know that ZipRecruiter exists? Has he ever read a resume? Right? Until you realize this is what he's done since the beginning of time. And so let me have an aside thought real quick, just like Paul did. If, if you're here this morning and you sense in your life that God might be asking you to do something, you feel as if he's, he's placing some sort of call in your life that's going to stretch you out of your comfort zone, but you're hesitating saying, I just don't think I'm qualified. No, you're not. Now, if you're thinking, I'm, I'm not ready, well, the truth is you're not ready, and you can't do this, and you don't have the resources for it, and that's entirely the point, because he specializes in putting his people in positions where when we succeed, he gets the credit, and he gets the glory, because that's the only explanation left. Since the launch of his church, God has used imperfect people for his glory, He took a Jesus-resisting, Christian-hating, Gentile-despising man and said, you're going to be my son Jesus' witness to the Gentiles. And from that calling, we get the majority of the books of the New Testament. Praise the awesome name of our God. All right, so that's a nice little history lesson. We now know how God kept the church a secret. We know how he called Paul to be a light to Gentiles. Here's the question we need to ask. What does this mean for FBN in 2019? What's it mean for you tomorrow morning when you get up and go to school or go to work? Well, there's, there's three things that I think we can take from this passage that, and, and apply directly to our lives. And the first is this, that we too must tell the story. But in doing so, we've got to make sure we have the right hero. Look at verse 7 again. This is Paul recounting his story. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And so did you see the task list, right? Verse 7, he is to become a servant of this gospel. Verse 8, he is to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Verse 9, he's to make plain to everyone the, the administration of this ministry. This mystery. Do you know what all that means? Okay, just to put it in our language, it means this. Tell the story. Tell the story. Tell what Jesus has done. It's, it's, it's vitally important to let people know that reconciliation to God has been made available in Jesus Christ. It's vitally important to tell people that Jesus has died for their sins. It's vitally important to tell them that he took their place in the cross to offer them forgiveness and eternal life if they will surrender and trust him. And in telling that story, by the way, if we tell that well, it it should be impossible for us not to tell our story, to tell how that same Jesus has impacted our lives and changed our lives and covered us with grace. And we see this throughout Acts, right? Every time Paul gets brought before a ruler and asked to give a defense of why he's preaching in Jesus' name, do you know what he does? He just tells a story. Well, let me tell you what happened to me, king. In his letters to to people who knew him already, he always takes some sections like this and tells his story. In fact, even the letters to Timothy, who who knew him better than anyone on the planet, who was his protege, who had heard his story thousands of times, each letter to Timothy, he breaks out and tells his story again. But there's a way, you see, there's a way to tell your story that's really important. Did you catch it? Look at verse 8 again. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people... Disgrace was given me. Do you know how incredibly helpful it is to be able to follow someone's writings throughout their life? We, we have that in the New Testament with Paul. We get to see him, him write to different churches throughout the course of his life, and it paints a picture for what God's doing in their hearts. And so Paul writes 
uh, a letter to the church in Corinth that we call 1 Corinthians. He wrote it either in 54 or 55 AD. And, and in the middle of that letter, in a, in, a, in a portion of that letter, he identifies himself. And listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 15:9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. Do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so there in 54, 55 AD, Paul looks at himself and says, of all the church leaders, I'm, man, I'm, I'm the lowest. I'm the least. I don't even deserve that title. Do you know when Ephesians was written? 62 AD. And how does he define himself in verse 8? No longer the least of the apostles. He's the least of what? Of all the church, of all God's people. Well, 65 AD is the year he wrote 1 Timothy. And here's how he describes himself there. Here's a trustworthy saying that demands acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Do you see the trend? I'm the least of all the apostles and leaders. I'm the least of the church. I'm the worst of sinners. The longer and longer that Paul knew and followed Jesus, the longer and longer he served this mission, the lower and lower his view of self got. And I think it's crucially important that we understand this for a couple of reasons. Number one, humility matters to God. And secondly, in this life where things can be mysterious and where things can come out of nowhere and things get really discouraging, the temptation is to trust in the wrong things. Our greatest temptation is to put our trust in ourselves and Christians are not immune to this. There are so many self-help messages coded in just the right amount of God language that makes them seem spiritual and right. And the reason that we get duped by these is because we want to believe. We want to believe that the one thing that we can control is ourselves. We can't control nature. We can't control other people. We can't control our circumstances. But at least tell me, at least let me know I can control myself. So I'm going to fix my attitude. I'm going to change my mindset. I'm going to speak positive things over me because I can at least control myself. Well, well, can you? I'll let you say that this morning if you've never once lost your temper. I'll let you say that if you've never said something that you immediately regretted. I'll let you say that if you've never done anything that, that brought you shame later because you couldn't believe it's what you did. See, the truth is we can't even control ourselves, which makes this trend that we see from Paul so important. The longer that he knew Christ, the more and more impressed he was with Christ and the less and less impressed he was with Paul. Now, this wasn't this like fake humility, self-focused kind of thing. I'm not good for anything, so I'm just gonna quit. It wasn't that. It was, I've brought nothing but my sin into this equation and I recognize that any good that I've done is because of the awesome grace of Jesus and so I am further excited to serve him. You get the difference, don't you? The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And so everything that good, everything good in my life comes from the gracious hand of God. Everything good that I accomplish is by his hand and his favor and his grace, and he gets all the glory and praise. This should cause us to strive to serve him more. And so it's important this morning, it's important that you know your story. This is why when, we, when people get baptized around here, we want them to tell their story because it's good for them and it's edifying for the whole church. And we, in, in doing so, we, we tell them there's, there's three focuses we want you to, to zoom in on. Number one, what your life was like before you knew Jesus. Number two, how you came to know him. And number three, what's the difference now? And those stories are awesome and, 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 and great, but even in them, listen to me, we've got to be careful. Because if not, what we can do is shape the story where we're a hero. Where I say, well, I used to think this, and I used to believe this, I used to do this, but now I'm a Christian, so I don't do those things anymore. Well, that's a story, all right, but you're the hero of it. 
See, the reality of my story is this, is that I was hopeless and dead in my sins. I had no chance. And Jesus Christ took my place in the cross and he saved me and redeemed me. And I love, I love when we talk about our stories, we say things like this. I struggled with lust as a young man. Let's be honest, you didn't struggle with it. You gave yourself over to it. It's not like you were punching yourself in the face as you were looking at it. You gave yourself over to it, but then Jesus Christ freed me from that. He freed me from those lies. He freed me from those temporary pursuits by filling my soul with something better, his presence. I used to try to fit in wherever I was. I could be a chameleon and play the part, but Jesus established the root of my identity as his child, and all that pressure was taken away. Do you see the difference in the story? The longer we follow Christ, the more we know him, the result should be the less and less we are reliant on ourselves. And the more and more we are reliant on him and his total and complete sufficiency for us. We've got to tell our story, church, but in doing so, we have to make sure we're telling it rightly. Because he's the hero of the story. Second thing that we can pull out of this passage is what Paul tells this church in verse 12, that we should live out what Jesus has purchased for us. So look at verse 12. (laughs) It says, in him, that's in Jesus, in Jesus and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Man, do you understand that this is so much of what it comes down to for Paul? Yes, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts will never be our thoughts. He he will act in ways that are mysterious to us, beyond us. We will never grasp them. And even angels in heaven don't know what he's doing sometimes. And God is well within his rights to do this, but never let it ever be said that our God is unapproachable because he is not. In Jesus Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In fact, we're told to do so. Hebrews chapter four, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen to me, when, when things come up that you don't see coming, we can run to him. When we feel isolated and alone and confused, he pursues us. When you're facing a decision and you need wisdom, you can ask him, and the book of James promises if you ask about that, you're gonna get that wisdom. When there are things occurring in your life that in his wisdom, he's gonna leave mysterious, he's not gonna explain them to you or give you the answers, what he does is he gives you himself. So never, listen to me, never allow the circumstances of your life, never allow your situation to be a hurdle to running towards God. The worst possible thing you can do when you're surprised and confused is trust more in yourself and get distant from him. The best response is to run to his presence. To be honest, God, I don't get this. I don't understand it, but I need your grace. And what I want you to understand this morning is that thanks to the death and resurrection of Jesus, that is available to us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's never not available to you. And so the question is, are you cashing that in? Are you taking advantage of this incredible resource of God's availability, his presence and power on your behalf? We need to live this out. And in doing so, number three, we we can't be discouraged. Look at verse 13. Paul actually, he, he kind of pleads the church here. I ask you, therefore, do not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Yes, throughout the course of life, suffering and hardships are gonna come. You know, metaphorically, we're all gonna take a driver to the head sometime that we didn't see coming. But it's interesting to me that we are now 57 verses into this letter to the, to the Ephesian church, and it's the first verse, 57 in, where they're told one specific thing to do. And like I said, it's less of a command and more of a request. 
Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's been arrested for preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. He's in chains. He's lost his freedom. And here's what he wanted to tell this church. Don't be discouraged by that. Don't be. Because in fact, in a way, this is even for your glory. And what he's doing there is Paul is picking up on a theme that's carried throughout all the authors of the New Testament. And this theme is this, that suffering does not equal the absence of God's blessing. It's one of the things I hate about the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel because they equate suffering with the absence of God's blessing and nothing could be further from the truth. Suffering does not mean God has removed his favor. It does not mean he's pulled back from you. It doesn't mean there can only be punishment or bad. That's not the message of the New Testament. And so there's a term that we use a lot around here and the term is this, it just, we say suffer well. And so if suffering is unavoidable in life, and it is, and you're gonna have to face it no matter what, and you will. You might, the followers of Jesus should make it their aim to just go ahead and suffer well then. And so if you're here today and there's, there's something in your life that you don't want, right? and God in his mysterious will is allowing something or ordaining something that you'd never choose, I'm not telling you this morning to celebrate it. I'm not even telling you to be happy about it. I'm just asking if you'd rather not waste it. You're going to have to go through it regardless. You might as well not waste it. And what the authors of the New Testament tell you to do is just to lean into it, to learn from it. James 1 has this ridiculous phrase, count it joy, because the work that this trial will do in your life and in your soul will bring tremendous results. We've got to learn that difficult times don't change the nature of God's goodness and faithfulness. In fact, what they often do is they end up highlighting those things. God's ways have always been mysterious. He's not on our level, but no circumstance, no trial, no matter how difficult, change the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 1 tells us this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Do you, do you get what that verse is saying? That means when we're promised in the Bible that God will never leave us or forsake us. When we're promised in Romans chapter 8 that God's going to work out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We're promised in Philippians 1 that, that he will complete the good work that he started in you. We're promised by Jesus that he has gone ahead of us and is preparing a place for us. When we're promised in 2 Corinthians 12 that his grace will be sufficient for us. When we're promised in Philippians 4 that he will provide all our needs. When we're promised eternal life in Jesus Christ and in, in the Psalms that God will guide us in the ways that we should go. In each one of those things we can know they were true. We can take them to the bank because it's guaranteed for us by Jesus and by the work of Jesus. And so weariness, sadness, grief, exhaustion, more can, will, and should be felt by followers of Jesus in this world because we are not home. But we must not give ourselves over to discouragement because no matter what, our mysterious God is working on our situation in ways we may not ever see on this side of heaven. There is zero denying that this life is full of surprises. Some of them are welcome, many are not. But you understand, don't you, that we've been given a story to tell that overcomes this life. We've been given a God to approach whose presence can sustain us and carry us through anything. We've been given a hope that drives away every ounce of discouragement. We just have to make sure we've got the right hero. You understand, don't you, that the answer to your confusion and your doubt and your worry and fear is never yourself. The answer to your struggle and your addiction is never yourself. The answer to your lack of self-esteem is never yourself. The answer to your sin is never yourself. The answer to the purpose for your life is never going to be found in you. All of those and more are found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. 
And so may God find those who call FBN home. May God find everyone in this room living our lives in complete and total confidence in the power, presence, and sufficiency of Jesus. May God find us telling our stories but never making ourselves the hero of them. May God find us approaching his throne of grace freely and with confidence because of what Jesus has purchased for us. And may he find us free of discouragement because we are his children who have been saved by Jesus Christ. And may any, any within the sound of my voice today who say up to this point you have not made the decision to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and follow him and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of life, may today be the day that you finally stop trusting in yourself. You're never going to find in you what you can find in Jesus. And what I'm asking is that right now in your seat, this very moment, that you would just say a short prayer and you would place your trust completely and fully in Jesus Christ. He's the only one worthy of it. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we have such a tremendous story to tell. Lord, that this mysterious church that was once your own little secret has now been proclaimed to the world and we get to be a part of it. God, your presence, which was once contained in a temple that we couldn't get to, is now available to us in our hearts, in our souls, in this room. This is tremendous. And so may we as your church never be afraid to tell that story. May we proclaim it to everyone who needs to hear it. But God, in doing so, we make sure that we're not the hero of it. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room who's, who up to this point has never given their life to Jesus Christ, God, that they would, in, in their seat right now, would surrender and completely and totally trust in him. That they would trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. They would trust in him for the gift of eternal life. They would trust in him for the privilege of being able to use this one life we have to follow him. And God, may anything else that they've trusted in up to this point, may they reject it all and leave it all at the foot of the cross. And Lord, for the rest of us, may you free us from discouragement, God. May you make us a church that runs to your presence. Because that's what you've been made of, that's what you've made available to us. And we ask that you'll do this to the glory of your name and for the exaltation of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Before Brandon and his team lead us in one final song, we're going to give a couple moments for you to just spend some time between you and the Lord and reacting and responding to some things he may have put on your heart today.